From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. So great to have all three of you here uh, for our final episode of 2023. It's hard to believe we've come to the end of another year already, uh, but we've had a lot of great episodes this year, and what we're going to do today is take a listen back through some of them. I pulled out a couple of clips from our guests, and we'll both reflect a little bit on what we heard and also how what our guests shared this year will have ramifications as we look ahead to 2024. So the first set of topics that we're going to talk about here is all about media and mental health. We began this year with two episodes about how political news and the way that we consume it impact our mental health. Uh, we're going to hear first from Penn State's Matt Jordan, uh, who is doing some work on news avoidance, and then from Christopher Ojeda from the University of California, um, talking about some of his work on how politics impacts depression and other aspects of our mental health. News avoidance is uh, something that, they, that people have been studying now for a while because there is a significant swath of the population that just because of the anxiety that news creates, the way that it's framed, the way that it's kind of always kind of a one bouncing from one crisis to the next, as kind of a wellness technique, what people tend to do is just to avoid it, right? That they're really managing their own feelings and affect level by just avoiding this kind of tumultuous deluge of bad news. We should be striving for a kind of a more holistic approach, a kind of a balanced approach to the things we do. We should work out a little bit. We should maybe mm -hmm. check the news a little bit. We should eat eat good food, et cetera, et cetera. And part of that mindfulness that comes to being wanting to be more holistic is also recognizing that the news is not the only important places that we're getting stories about what makes people in a democracy work, right? We, from art, we get stories about uh, what good virtue is and whatnot. And I think the, 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 the danger is that when we think that the only way we can be engaged in democracy or politics is by being a news junkie, then we get pulled into only one kind of story and it tends to only have the same kind of characters, villains and, and people who are doing this bad or that bad. And so we're talking about, in a way, the worst people in the world and not talking about those people who we see as helpers or people who are going to help us be better. One story might make us feel anxious or might make us angry, but when we consume that sort of intense emotional story over and over and over again, it becomes depressing because we start to think there are too many problems. There are so many problems that even if we solved one of them, a million other problems would exist. How could we possibly tackle all these issues? And so I think it's the totality of media that we consume that can be really depressing rather than any one story. Now, of course, any one story can itself be depressing. We, you know, war, natural disasters, like these kinds of things um, make us feel sad. But um, but I think it is that sort of nonstop news cycle that really gets to our psyche. So there's a lot of discussion about how echo chambers are not good for democracy because we want people talking to 
people who think differently from them. We want people to be exposed to different ideas and engaging in informed debate with other people. But what happens if that in debate is really stressful and damaging to our mental health? And what is actually good for our mental health is being around people who are like us. And so these are serious conflicts that I think we need to think about as we think about how to make democracy work. Mm-hmm. So my questions for for all of you to get things started here is, you know, these guests seem to be suggesting that we need to be more mindful about how much news we consume, what kind of news we consume. I'm wondering how realistic that is in an election year when political news is seemingly going to be wall to wall. You know, when I um, when I first saw this question, I remember uh, talking to Matt completely outside of the podcast. And and I said that I found myself watching a lot more sports than I usually do. And he said, yeah, me too. So so we are both guilty of this news avoidance. And, and I don't think there's anybody who really isn't. The, the world is in bad shape right now, and it's scary and threatening. And uh, it's not likely to get better in 2024. So yeah, I can, it's totally understandable that that people are avoiding this and uh, looking for other outlets. I will say that it's worth noting that there was, I I, I was, <laughs> I would say that it is worth noting that since 2021, I have perhaps um, consumed less news not out of avoidance, but because there's some, um, well, not not recently, but over the past couple of years, there's just been a level of normalness. So, you know, I th- in comparison to the Trump era, where there was just something bizarre, something absurd, something ridiculous, something unheard of on a regular basis, Um, in comparison to where we've been over the past few years, and I'll say, you know, let's say before the Ukraine war started, that, you know, I I wonder if there's a way that we can remember what the normal feels like and, you know, how how do you consume news in a normal space versus when there's just pure chaos? I think one of the things, and I'll... um, just stop really quickly. One of the things I've noticed in the in the past couple of years is how much news in the media is actually not newsworthy. And so I always think to myself like, oh, there must be nothing going on if we're talking about like Sam Altman getting fired from OpenAI. Like why was that a huge story? But I think it's perhaps because we don't have a president who does unheard of things on a, on a daily basis. So, okay. So what's the lesson here? Not elect a person that is going to put us into a state of chronic stress um, in the media. Yeah. Well, for the record, I thought the open AI news was huge. Not Sam Altman, like the, the, the reason why we were talking about Sam Altman had to do with 
what um, what we know about AI and its capabilities. But the whole kind of politics of the guy who got fired mm -hmm. and the personalities involved was not important, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, given, right. So that's, that's the part that I, I just really don't agree with you on, Candice, because I think that that AI is huge and will have profound implications for the world. And what was going on at OpenAI was a unique kind of arrangement where they tried to have the sort of nonprofit board really keeping an eye on the dangers of AI. I find it not only sort of fascinating, but also profoundly important. Uh, so that OpenAI, I mean, that company is billions of dollars worth of value. Uh, and a technology that, you know, could eat us all up alive. So I, I just just a difference of opinion on on that. But 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 Candace, it does sort of play into sort of my sense of now. I I agree with you completely about Trump and the way that he dominated the news cycle with constant chaos. And I think it was a deliberate strategy actually to keep us from being able to focus on anything that was going on because everything was being thrown and Biden really does restore things to normality. But what, I mean, my first thought when I was reading like these, thinking about these clips and the notion of news avoids is that I sort of feel like we're at a, a sort of inflection point in not only this country, but maybe the world. There are like profound things going on right now. Uh, so not paying attention feels sort of risky to me, not not to the election necessarily, because the election coverage is awful. You know, it's all these polls and it's all of these outrageous, ridiculous things that are said at these silly debates that they're holding. And and yeah, just focusing on the election like that does seem like a, a kind of unhealthy waste of time. Uh, but I don't know the you know, the possible end of American support for Ukraine. Uh, the fact that hostages, including American hostages, are still being held. Um, and then, of course, uh, some of the plans that Trump has talked about, and I know that we'll get to some of them for for his next term, it says to me that people really ought to be paying attention, not avoiding it. But that doesn't mean to me watching CNN and MSNBC. I mean, people have to figure out their own ways of staying informed. I, yeah, I I actually think that's. I mean, I want to make sure that we're um, fair to Matt's point. It's not merely about um, how you uh, how much news you consume, but what is your what is your stance towards this? And his argument is that it's we're we're watching news as if it's a a, a spectator sport, and that that's how we're engaging politically, mm -hmm. and. Um, I am reminded of uh, Jenna's podcast, How the People Decide, or When the People Decide, sorry. Uh, the last episode of the second season two is Eric Liu. And he, he said something that, you know, that I've said as well, that, you know, if you want to engage politically, um, one way to do it is to engage in your community, to become, um, to engage on a real basis with real people. And if you can do that with people who you disagree with, all the better. So part of the issue here is how we understand ourselves as citizens, as political actors. And 
all the stuff you're talking about, Michael, especially, you know, the uh, cable news channels, um, frames these things as, you know, interesting competitions that are fun to watch. And let's hope our team wins when, you know, A, the stakes are significantly higher and B, you know, your the, the, the demands that are put on you as a dem- democratic citizen are much more robust than that. So um, something else that we talked about, we, as you, you all know, uh, we love a good bureaucracy episode around here. And we did uh, several of those this year. One with Jennifer Palka, uh, who talks about the ways that um, technology can improve the government and how the government can streamline its use of technology. Uh, and then we also talked with Jamila Mishner, um, who studies administrative burdens and and the way that people, particularly uh, poor communities and communities of color, interact with or maybe don't interact with government services like Medicare, Medicaid, those those kinds of things. So to refresh your memory uh, about the state of our bureaucracy, uh, let's hear from Jennifer Palka and Jamila Mishner. I think that the connection between the public's experience with government services and the public's willingness to engage in democracy as we think of it on sort of the electoral side, like, do they vote? (laughs) Are they engaged in public dialogue? Um, You know, do they believe that government can be, even if they don't feel it is today, a force for good? Those things are much more deeply connected than we tend to talk about. Every public servant has many, many experiences in their life where when someone finds out they work for the government at any level, the you know, somebody they know will complain to them about uh, being at the DMV or trying to get their SNAP benefits, or they have a cousin who's um, on probation. And these just terrible things are happening to people as they get stuck in the bureaucracy. And they hear from them that that experience, even if it's secondhand, makes them believe that our democracy isn't working. And they, the public who has these experiences, don't tend to distinguish between the bureaucracy and electoral politics. And I think that when we fail to make that connection, we are inviting greater populism. During the pandemic, there were a lot of things that sort of were uh, further invested in, that were ramped up, and that were um, extended in ways that helped a lot of people. And because I was interviewing people all throughout the pandemic, this really became clear to me. People know, people don't know the nitty gritty of policy. They're not like this bill and that bill, you know, but they know that suddenly they're getting more benefits, food benefits, that the amount of, of SNAP assistance they're receiving increases and they can get some more food for their family or at least offset the growing costs of food. Um, And they know that they're not having to do as much. There's not as much administrative burden associated with getting help from the government. But it's worth pointing out that many of these folks are not sitting around at home like, I want the largesse of the government. They're working really hard, getting paid not great wages, dealing with rising food costs, rising housing costs, rising costs of everything that aren't keeping up with rising wages, trying to survive. And during the pandemic, the government, federal, state, local, helped them more. So as we heard in those clips, there were some some bright spots here, especially what Jamila talked about during the pandemic, uh, about the ways that 
you know, the government was really able to to do more to tangibly help folks in their day to day lives. I know that um, the work that that Jennifer is doing as well is is trying to strengthen some of these systems so that the government can be less bureaucratic and and provide better services, and that she argues will increase trust in in government moving forward. But on the flip side of this, there's something called Project 2025. Um, I will link in the show notes a post from uh, Don Moynihan, one of our previous guests. He wrote about this in the New York Times, and I think he even touched on it a little bit when he was on the show. But that kind of threatens to undermine not just this work that Jennifer and, and Jamila talked about, but the entire way that, that the government uh, operates more broadly. When the Affordable Care Act was being uh, developed and proposed, and one of the Obama team's proposals there were to have navigators who would help people to become aware of the benefits that were available f- to them through the ACA, how to how to work their way through the exchanges, things of that nature, basically to bring people into the Affordable Care Act. And man, did people not like that on the Republican side. And, you know, in some states, I remember, I didn't go back and look this up, but my recollection is that in Florida, for example, they were just adamant that there'd be no navigators in their states. And, and what occurs to me, I think about this whole question of, you know, government taking pride in what it does and bringing people into the programs, Depends how you feel about government. And, you know, that remains one of the underlying conflicts within American society or, or, or between American political parties. And, uh, you know, it seems to be Democrats like what government does and they want to bring people in and, and, and promote what they do. But, you know, this kind of that's a Democratic idea. Republicans, for the most part, or at least Republican elites, don't like to talk about the good things government does. They much prefer to undercut it as much as they can. So it seems unlikely that they would promote programs like this. And I mean, I hope I'm not unfairly painting them there, but that really does seem over many, many years, my sense of how the parties differ towards government. You know, um, Reagan said, Ronald Reagan, this was in the early 80s, maybe even the in the 70s. He said the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You know, so it is a longstanding right. notion. And I only think it's ex- gotten more extreme with the, um, you know, decline of any uh, respect for any kind of institutions in society and um, the denigration of any kind of authority. Right. Um, so it, 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 it hasn't improved from those words of Reagan. You know, I, th- I think just to say that I think both parties um, understand that policy telegraphs messages to the public. It tells them who belongs, who can play, how, you know, the extent to which your representatives believe that certain people um, should have a higher quality citizenship and bundle of rights than others. So, I, I mean, you know, like we're, make, we're making a broad brush statement about whether Republicans uh, want to use government. Um, they they want to use it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Right. So we can think about bureaucracies and um, areas of the government that are bolstered 
yep. under, you know, conservative governments yep. or under Every liberal state, governments. We can think about, exactly, we can think about policing, we can think about education. We can increase some, we can decrease others. We can think about um, incarceration, we can think about public parks. We can think about national parks. You know, there's all sorts of things. So um, I think that both parties recognize that they can use the government to get to, to, right to, to, to message what it is and who it is that the government works for. How easy is it to get a concealed weapons license versus to get TANF? Right. It just, you know, it, it just these things. Right. Can be um, the government can be made. Uh, more available or less available, depending on what it is that you want to get. To the question about Project 2025, I think we can just think about uh, Maya Angelou. When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. You know, Trump, you know, we can say like, oh, this is so crazy. Would this ever happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, will the courts let it happen? Will Congress let it happen? I mean, Trump has been very clear about his intentions. And we know now that in a way that we didn't know in 2016, the number of people who would be willing to be a part of, you know, a, 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 a project that takes tens of thousands of um, Trump supporters to undermine the bureaucracy or, or weaponize it. Um, for for the benefit of um, for the benefit of Trumpism, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, we should be we should be worried. But you know, I, I don't think I, one thing that has got nearly enough attention in my view is Nikki Haley calling saying that she wants to put a five year term limit on bureaucrats, which it, nothing that I could think of would. I can't see any way in the world that happens. But 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 just the idea is so antithetical to the way bureaucracy is supposed to work effectively, which is that people are in a position, they learn how to do it, they develop expertise, they develop uh, routines and procedures, they work with clients, they get used to doing what it is they do. And what she wants to do is to just wipe that out every time somebody learns their job, replace them with somebody else. And there's just nothing in that idea that is meant to strengthen government services or make them better, uh, make them possible to be administered better or develop more wisely. Uh, and then 20, you know, the, the, the ideas in, in some of this Project 2025 um, really would have a significant impact on the federal bureaucracy. I mean, keep in mind already that the United States has a much, how do I put this, has a weaker civil service than most other bureaucracies, that our, you know, our, uh, the extent to which we have political appointees extends much deeper into the bureaucracy than it does in other countries. Uh, This would just do that even further, turning more and more people into political appointees and therefore just sort of serving at the whim of the president and doing what the president wants. I think it's uh, a dangerous idea. Well, that maybe leads us into our next topic. We did also talk this year about threats to Democracy. In particular, we're going to highlight um, two guests. One is Tim Miller, um, the former Republican strategist, who you may know from his work now at The Bulwark or on the, the circus on Showtime. 
The other is Barbara Walter, who wrote the book How Civil Wars Start. Um, and she, in her clip, will introduce us, or at least she introduced me uh, in our interview to the concept of anocracy and um, America's status as one. So uh, let's hear first from Tim Miller and then from Barbara Walter that on the Republican side, you saw a lot of people that like were really almost nihilistic, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that chose to go into that because it was like, I like politics. I like the competition and, um, you know, whatever. And I write in the book about a guy who revealed to me during the interviews that they've never voted for a Republican for president. <laughs> and like, this is at the high level of power, but he just likes the rush of it all. Right. So I, I think that that's something a little different. Now, I, I think that, that that is getting exacerbated. To a great degree, if you look at the type of people that are self-selecting in to the Donald Trump party, like think about, you know, I don't, I don't want to insult any students at Penn State, but think about the type of person who's 2022, who's like, I like politics. I'm maybe, I'm maybe kind of ideal, you know, I'm ideologically, I'm forming my ideology. You know, I'm not talking about the kids that come that are super, you know, already ideologically formed, but I want to go work in Washington. I want to go work in campaigns. The type of person that's going to say, yeah, I'll go take a job for the RNC, like during the Trump era, after Trump, it's a different type of person. Like it is, it is somebody that, ha- that has accepted that they like that, that they're cool with the trolling and the mocking and the cruelty. And so I, I worry deeply about like the self-selection of who is, um, who's choosing to, to enter, you know, right now. And I think that that's true from like the entry level jobs all the way through candidates, right? right? Like what kind of candidate wants to run? You know, I always say I, I get calls, frankly, from, from people who are conservative mainstream. They're like, should I run in a Republican primary? And I, I basically have to tell them, no, I, I said, you should do what you want. I'll support you. But I, like, there is just not a path for you unless you you know, are willing to debase yourself for Donald Trump, uh, that has an effect on what kinds of people are going into Washington. So I, this is an ongoing thing that I think is actually getting a little worse over time. So we were officially classified as an anocracy in December of 2020. Uh-huh. That happened after the sitting president refused to accept um, the results of election and tried to overturn them. But when Trump did peacefully leave office um, and we had a new administration and that new administration has been honoring the rule of law and and clearly supports democracy, our score was raised. We went from a positive five to a positive eight. We're not back at a positive ten. Um, this happened after the after the book after the original out, yeah. book came out. So the the paperback's coming out mm. this month, and it will have updated data. Um, and and so so we've kind of dodged a bullet. But but a really important point to make is our our democracy score improved not because any of our democratic institutions were strengthened. Our our institutions are as weak today as they were on January 21st. There have been no reforms of the mm-hmm. system since Biden came into office. The only reason we're a little bit on, on steadier ground is because we have an individual who honors democracy. Boy, you know, that, that means that we're putting a lot of, uh, you know, we're asking that individual to, to hold up democracy. And if, if somebody else is elected who, who doesn't want democracy, our system is is still vulnerable to rapid backsliding. All right. So this year, our guests, not just 
Tim and, and Barbara, but I think across the board, um, we heard concerns about what's at stake uh, based on the outcome of November's election. I think I know the answer to this based on what we've talked about so far, but uh, do you share their concerns or other things that our guests maybe haven't talked about um, that, that you'd like to, to introduce as other concerns or, or things that you're keeping an eye on? One thing I think is worth emphasizing that um, Barbara Walter mentioned is that, one, so many of our ways of doing things is based on norms and um, is based on people doing the right thing. And sometimes even just one person doing the right thing or the wrong thing. But also to note that um, there haven't been any major reforms, please correct me if I'm wrong, that would um, prevent any of the things that we've seen before. And the fact that, um, I don't know, I, I guess I would be interested to hear um, your thoughts, Michael and Chris, about whether the prosecutions and the insurrection were is enough of a deterrent for people to try to use violence in the future. Um, I just, I'm not sure I get a sense that we have kind of reset or leveled up our um, expectations for our behavior in the future. If anything, they've declined and have stayed on the decline. Yeah, well, I think the... No, I don't think that the prosecutions in the insurrection are going to strong as a, stand as a strong deterrent, uh, at least not to people. I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, I mean, the idea, right, is that, I mean, stunt. the idea around punishment is that it's supposed to deter people from doing similar behaviors in the future. Now, we know in crime that, for example, that the death penalty does not prevent people from, I don't know, shooting at schools or whatever. You know, it doesn't, it, like harsher penalties don't seem to, 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 um, to what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, prevent people, deter, yeah. deter people from doing heinous things. Yeah. And on some level, we're like, you know, we want people to be held accountable that's one thing. But on the other hand, we also are hoping that people don't do this again. And I'm not really sure that we are, there's been a major signal or a major change in policy and rhetoric and, and much of anything that would deter a future insurrection if the election doesn't go the way yeah. some number of people think it ought to go. Right. And on some level, it seems like insurrection and violence has on some way become, it's not normal, it's happened once, but it's like, we're, we're kind of in a situation where it, we might expect it. And we would um, maybe be surprised if it doesn't happen that way. Yeah, I think the comments from uh, Tim Miller are valuable here because as he's pointed out, there just seems to be an endless supply <laughs> of people that are willing to kind of do whatever it needs to do to be close to power. Uh, or it'd be close to, to close to Donald Trump. And, you know, we have seen in many state legislatures around the country that election denialism runs really deep. 
and remains. And uh, we've seen this with some uh, with many of the local, many of the state political parties as well, that they've been kind of completely taken over. So I'm not, you know, I'm skeptical that it's going to be operated as a deterrent. It's hard to like, you know, put your hands around all the dimensions of this. But Trump gets indicted 91 times and his fundraising goes up and his number, his polling numbers go up. And I have no reason to think that's not going to be the case. Well, you know, I hope it's not. But I don't you know if and when the man is convicted, I don't know that that's going to change. And even the people that have been have pled guilty in the Georgia case have then come back and said, oh, well, it was an extorted um, confession. And well, so there is this there is this, events. you know, argument that there is no rule of law outside of partisanship, that it's only a matter of who gets control and who is able to employ the law in the service of their partisan ends. And so, you know, I'm not saying that's true, but I'm saying that is how it is presented over and over and over within the Trumpian circles of the Republican Party. And so I, I, I don't see how this changes. I mean, I, I don't see how it changes. <laughs> I don't know. I still think that prosecuting these cases is extremely important. Mm -hmm. I um, agree. I think it's very important that look, the courts are one way. Remember back to our Jonathan Rausch podcasts and visit. They are an important part of the constitution of knowledge and institution that helps us understand what has happened and what, what the facts are uh, around certain matters. And the courts are doing a pretty good job of that right now. It does feel, though, like these prosecutions at the federal level just started too late. We just have never been there before. I mean, it has all the recipes. I mean, it seems to me a recipe for a constitutional crisis uh, down the line as they kind of wrestle with, well, what, do you ha what happens when the guy's in jail, but he's elected president? But I also think it's possible, I continue to think it's possible, that it all just falls apart for him uh, once, these, once these trials begin. Could just be, you know, I could could be just totally crazy in me, but you know, we just don't know how things are going to change. You know, it's the same sort of argument I use with people that really pay a tremendous amount uh, of attention to some of the polls right now. When we know that you can't really pay any attention to presidential polls until after the Iowa prime, Iowa caucuses and maybe New Hampshire primary, because everything gets shaken up. Well, and as you know, Tim Miller framed it. Um, I have been, you know, continually surprised and disheartened at the degree to which uh, Republican politicians who absolutely know better continue to debase themselves, to, you know, turn themselves into, oh, I shouldn't say that. I really want to, though, um, continue to debase themselves for an, and, and forswear their oath to the Constitution uh, for the sake of their seat, of uh, you know, maintaining their seat, I, I, I don't know how these people sleep at night, and I don't say that um, facetiously. I, I genuinely don't. Um, I mean, I assume they love their country, and I assume they, you know, they believed it when they, um, you know, so 
affirmed, vowed their support for the Constitution. And yet here we are again. And I, I don't, um, you know, I mean, the, the latest Iowa poll, it, it would just be astonishing at this point if Trump doesn't walk away with it. And, you know, the idea that something is going to intervene before, um, say, February to, to make people think, well, maybe he's not, maybe I should look at Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis again. I, I, you know, I would be thrilled if that happened, but I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, it seems it seems difficult. It's difficult to imagine. I think we also still have to remember <laughs> that a lot of people don't pay much attention this early. We do, and hardcore partisans do. And of course, the media does with their constant fixation on polls, which in itself, I think, is pretty dangerous for coverage of elections because it means that they're not covering what the implications of electing one candidate rather than another actually are. But there are a lot of people that are really not all that focused yet. And I, I mean, I take as an example of that these crazy polls that came out over Wait the weekend. Wait a second. Do you think they're going to pay attention before they before primaries? I mean, like, well, before focusing, yes. The attention are the people who vote well, in primaries. And those are the people who have, who are making the choice for the rest of us later. True, true. But still, I mean, when it comes down to time to caucus, you have to really sit down and think about it. And you have to do it in front of, you know, in front of your fellow caucus mates. I don't know. Maybe he's going to walk away with the whole thing. I, he may well. I just think it's a little early to be so sure of that. And especially given where we might be in some of the trials. But, yeah. you know, I don't know. Well, I um, guess you can just walk away with it. I, I will just circle back to your previous no. point about Project 2025 not being specifically about Trump. So we still may not be out of hot water. We have a few minutes left, and I thought that we would just talk about the other things that we liked this year that weren't related to politics. Clearly, there's not much to like about politics right now. Um, so let's talk about some of the other things, the other books, movies, TV shows that you might uh, recommend. I was telling you all earlier that that my students really enjoyed playing their Spotify wrapped in class and, and looking at those. Um so for me, uh, I really got into the show For All Mankind on Apple this year, um, which is an alternate history of what would have happened if Russia or the, the Soviet Union had been the first to the moon and the space race had continued. Um, it's a little bit sci-fi, but also has some really interesting geopolitical ramifications. They look at how the continued space race might have impacted American politics and um, cooperation between countries around the world and also just some really great writing and, and characters. So it's in its fourth season now. So lots to go back and catch up on. Um, and then on, on my Spotify wrapped, uh, my top artist this year was a guy named Corey Wong, who is a guitar player and leads a band that's, um, kind of a mix between Steely Dan and Tower of Power or Earth, Wind & Fire, some kind of funk groups, but he's incredibly talented and also very good on social media. Um, he put out this comedy series on YouTube, so just really multifaceted. So those are some of the things that um, helped me uh, 
keep my news consumption in check this year uh, was focusing on things like that. Well, I like that show too, Jenna. Really From Mankind? Cool. Yeah, it's yeah. really clever. And I mean, it's not the best show on TV, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's very clever. And, and your suggestion had me thinking about a TV show as well. I think John Hamm playing a constitutional a constitutional sheriff on Fargo this year is just beautiful. Uh, I mean, the show is not everybody's taste. I realize that, but uh, they they did set up John Hamm as a constitutional sheriff, and especially when he gives a speech right at the beginning, all I could think about was the show that Candace and I did talking about constitutional sheriffs. I, they had it down. I had it down pretty well. My my Spotify revealed that that I have been listening repeatedly and by different artists to the Bob Dylan 2000 th- song, Things Have Changed, uh, which has a line that I just absolutely love these days. And it goes, some, it goes like this, people are crazy and times are strange. And every time I hear somebody sing that song, I think, boy, you really had it in 2000. Imagine if you were writing that song today. Uh, and I had a book, but I'll save it because I've taken enough time. Did uh, you want to go? Yeah. So the TV show that I am living for right now is The Gilded Age. Oh, really? Which like that, is, um, yeah, like <laughs> there are, I, I mean, I'm really not into like period pieces, but this one I like because they're, uh, you know, it's, it's between, you know, the Gilded Age. So right after Reconstruction, right before the Progressive Era. Um, and there are Black characters who are central to the plot line in a way that other, <laughs> other pieces around um, around this time are not. And so, you know, th- there are some ways that are very romanticized, like we don't see. Anyway, we anyway, I really like it. And I like that, like, there, the, you know, it's historical fiction. So there's elements of real events and real people that you kind of want to like look more into, right? So Thomas Fortune shows up, who is a black journalist. Um, why Frederick Douglass hasn't shown up, I don't know, but Booker T. Washington has anyway. Um, I accidentally read um, over Thanksgiving this book called Coming of Age in Mississippi by Ann Moody. And it is about a foot soldier in the civil rights movement. And it's one of those, um, it was written in 1968, it's written in vernacular, more or less. And it's about one of those people that we just don't know, despite um, the fact that we benefited from her labor, her inside bravery. Um, she was exiled from her hometown in Mississippi um, as a teenager because she um, wanted to help people register to vote. and to get access to better schools. And so, you know, it's just one of those, um, you know, a, a story about a person who we don't hear enough about, though the fact that their work changed our society. Uh, well, um, I, you know, reading or listening to that uh, Tim Miller quote uh, remind me that it, his book, uh, Why We Did It, is um, uh, really good. It's really engaging and um, seriously honest and and introspective, which is which are words that are not commonly associated with politics these days. So uh, that that I would recommend. Um, so I have two uh, TV shows. Um, one is Slow Horses. Um, oh yeah, we like also, that too. Also yeah. on uh, um, uh, on Apple. Great. Gary Oldman. I don't know what it is about 
Brits and their ability to act, but damn, it's good. Um, the other thing um, I wanted to say is um, I, I, I'm embarrassed how much of a Star Wars geek I am, but um, if you haven't seen Andor, oh my God. I mean, it's it's really good, not if you're just a Star Wars geek, but it's just really, really good. And so um, if you haven't seen that, I would really recommend it too. Well, I'll link all of those in the show notes uh, so folks can check them out, as well as the episodes that we played clips from today. If you want to go back and listen while we are on winter hiatus, uh, the show will be off until mid-January or so. We'll <laughs> dive back in in uh, 2024. Um, but I hope everybody has a happy holiday season, enjoys a little bit of rest uh, at this time of year. Thank you, as always, to our partners at WPSU for making the show happen. Thank you to all of you, Michael, Candace, and Chris. For the whole team, I'm Jenna Spinelli. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy, and additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group Podcast Network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening. 